Father in heaven, we bow our heads before you this evening, and we ask you to send your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts, take away the natural deadness, enlighten the eyes of our heart, O Lord, that we might see with the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the true knowledge of Christ, that knowing Him, O Lord, and His mind, we might be better equipped to turn away from sin to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles, and to run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We offer these prayers, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's Word. Please take heed how you hear. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me, and I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, the fourth stanza of Psalm 119 I entitled, The Lament of a Dusty Soul. My soul clings to the dust. In the, in the Bible, dust and death go together like sugar and sweet, or maybe cockroaches and yuck, right? Um, they're, they're joined together. From dust, God created man a lifeless body, absent the life of God in his soul. He was just a heap of dust lumped together in the form of a human body. But there was no life there, right? What made the difference, of course, was the breath of God as God figuratively knelt down, put His fingers over the nose, the nostrils of Adam, put His mouth over Adam's mouth, and breathed into Adam the life of God. And Adam became a living soul in that moment. And Adam opened his eyes, you remember, and he found himself face to face with God. Adam never had a moment of life, true life, without a realization of the face of God and the eyes of God looking deep into his soul. If you like, it was a lesson to Adam, what makes you different than dust? What makes you more than dust? It's the presence of God and the life of God in your soul. What will happen then, Adam, if you walk away from me, if you abandon me, if you forsake me, if you disobey me? Well, from dust you are created, and to dust you shall return. The moment Adam turned away from God in that 
uh, event we um, surmised this morning as he turned away and reached above himself to become like God, the one who knows on his own terms what is good and what is evil. In that moment, Adam dislocated himself from the life of God and became a dead soul in a dying body. From dust you were created, and to dust you shall return. Uh, a corpse sucked dry of the life of God. And this morning, or sorry, this evening, I don't know whether I'm coming or going tonight, this evening, the psalmist feels the dustiness of his body. I used to, I used to know a fellow at the gym, this older man, and he, he would say, he's taking care of his dust suit at the gym, working out. Well, Adam's soul, he, uh, the, the psalmist's soul here, he feels himself clinging to the dust. You might say he feels himself trapped, a living soul trapped in a dying corpse. He's echoing what Paul says in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, why does the psalmist feel this way? Well, two immediate reasons jump out. First of all, he might have the flu, which I can, from personal experience, tell you total body pain, even your hair hurts. Um, but uh, he might be sick. I'm jesting. It, it might be the flu, but it might be some other more serious, more mortal illness. And, and in those moments, of course, we feel the mortality of our body as our body lurches down, like those planes that crashed at the air show, lurching toward the ground. There are times when our, we're reminded of our mortality when our bodies lurch groundward, dustward, and we feel ourselves on the, on the tinkering, on the, on the edge of the grave. So we might be sick. A second, I think, more likely reason is that here's a man struggling with the ongoing sense of his own fallenness. His heart's wandering, grubby, grimy nature, his never-failing ability to trip up in the ways of God, the power of sin, sin to trip him up, drag him down, and dirty him up. I think that's what's going on in the psalmist's heart here this evening. The psalmist confesses to God his ways in verse 29. Sorry, verse 26. When I told of my ways, you answered me. And in verse 29, he tells you what those ways are. Put false ways far away from me. That he finds himself locked on a trajectory that is neither good, beautiful, or true. He's addicted to false ways. We'll think about that in a second. He finds his heart also struggling to comprehend the basic pathway of obedience. He says, make me understand the way of your precepts. He feels like a, you know, a middle school student stuck in calculus, and he's out of his depth, doesn't, doesn't understand it, all these quadratic equations and, and so forth. It just, it just it blew his mind. He can't grasp it. And it doesn't matter how often he goes to the class, he keeps on flunking it. He wishes the math teacher could unzip his head and climb inside and make him understand. Because he can't. 
doesn't matter how often this man attends Spirituality 101. He just can't get a passing grade. Ever feel that way? He wants to run in the way of God's commandments, but his heart's too small. He doesn't have the spiritual aerobic fitness to run and to keep a fast pace in God's ways. At best, his obedience comes in spits and spats. He doesn't have the spiritual stamina for what Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. You ever feel that way? He's terribly afraid also of reaching the end of his life and being ashamed of himself. Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord, like a drowning man clinging to his, his life raft. Let me not be put to shame. He's terrified of, of letting God down and ending his life in shame and misery. He finds his heart dissolving in sorrow. My soul melts away for sorrow. His soul, you might say, has the flu, and he can't put one foot past the other in spiritual things. Do you ever feel that way? I have to confess, I feel that way more than I would care to admit. Maybe you're too strong for a psalm like this. God forbid. But if, 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 as you read these words tonight alongside me, you find in your heart the echo of a weak soul saying, Lord, this is me. You have a friend in the psalmist and a friend in the Holy Spirit who inspired the psalmist to give you these words. Why does God give you words like these? Because He knows you will need them. And when you need them, and when you believe them, and when you use them, he intends to answer them. He's not mocking you here. These are words designed to give a weak soul hope. Here's a psalm for one of Christ's mourning brothers to sing, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's the lament of a dusty soul. You might also call it the anatomy of true repentance. It's a beautiful picture of how dependent we are for God's grace as we try to repent. Too often, we think of repentance as something we give God. We feel sorry enough for our sins. We work up the resolve and the willpower not to sin anymore, and we come to God and say, there, here's my repentance, and then God gives you grace. And with such a mindset then, grace is something you earn. You give God the token of repentance, penance, <coughs> in a Catholic system, and then God gives you grace, mercy, forgiveness. We can think like that, but it's a soul-destroying mindset. It makes us believe we have strength when we have none. It makes us believe that we can have merit when we have none. Even in our repentance, we must be repenting. And even in our repentance, we need grace to even begin to begin to repent. We don't earn grace by repenting. We need grace even to begin to repent. 
which is why in almost every one of these stanzas, verses, sorry, the psalmist is praying, calling out to God for help, because he can't repent by himself. He needs grace for that. So, what we learn in this lament of a dusty soul about repentance? First of all, I want you to see the beginning of true repentance. When your soul feels dead, where do you go? When your soul feels like it's clinging to a corpse, like Paul in Romans 7, like the, the Roman method of execution, they would, tie the living, they would tie the living condemned man face to face, arm to arm, with the corpse of a dead man. And the living man would carry the corpse around, and as the corpse rotted and putrefied, the death of the one would spread into the other. And so David, so Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's the psalmist. He feels like he's a soul tied to a rotting corpse. Where do you go when your soul feels dead? You go to the Word. Where else can you go? My soul clings to the dust. Give me life. Revive me, literally, according to your Word. Isn't that the lesson the disciples learned in John 6? Turn there with me at the end of John 6. After all these weird talks about Jesus, about eating and drinking His body and blood, and people are forsaking Christ left, right, and center. You remember at the end, in verse 60, when many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to to them, do you take offense at this? then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There's a wealth of spiritual wisdom there. When your soul feels dead, where do you go? Don't try and stir up spiritual life in yourself, the life of faith, the life of repentance the life of religious affections. There's no life in yourself. The flesh is of no help whatsoever, which is why Paul says in Colossians that beating your body, fastings, all these things are of no value in overcoming the flesh. No value. Where do you go? You go to the Spirit. Where do you get the Spirit? You get the Spirit in the Word. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You can't come to Christ in faith. You can't come back to Christ in repentance unless it's been given to you by the Father. After this, many of His disciples turned away no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of everlasting life. Where do you go when your soul feels dead? Back to this book. These words are spirit, and these words are life. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. So I'm telling you this evening, If you want life in your soul, you won't find it behind the back of the Bible. Do you believe that? 
If you do, Jesus says, why is it that I find you so seldom reading your Bible? You have a Bible in your phone, but when you turn your phone on, you go to Facebook, Instagram, Fox News, TikTok. Do you want the Chinese reading all of your, your keystrokes, or do you want the Holy Spirit reading your heart? Patrick Henry said, give me freedom or give me death. The psalmist said, give me your word. It's the only way to life. The beginning of true repentance. Back to the Bible. Are you struggling with sin this evening? Are you struggling with a dusty soul that just tends to turn away from God and is cold toward Jesus, where do you go? Back to the Bible. Especially the Bible preached, but also the Bible read. Isn't it true when we're in the Bible, we meet Jesus? Like this morning in Philippians 2, there was a sense that Christ was here. And I know you could feel it. I could see it in your eyes. Christ was here speaking through the mad ramblings of a diseased preacher, Christ was here, and His Word was glowing, and His character was being set forth by the Holy Spirit, and you met with Him. The beginnings of true repentance is in the Word. Secondly, the confession of true repentance, verse 26, when I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Notice, the psalmist told God about his ways. His ways. No more about that in a second. Which ways were these? Well, he tells you in verse 29, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Now, the, false, the word false here carries the idea of that which is basically untrue, deceptive, a lie. And he could be speaking about his own capacity to deceive people, to lie, to exaggerate, to put, tell a half-truth as a whole truth, which is a whole untruth, and so forth and so on, right? That could be part of it. He could be lamenting his own lack of integrity. But going a bit deeper, I think there's more. I think the psalmist is lamenting not just his capacity to lie, but his capacity to believe lies. Like Adam in the garden, you shall be like God. A lie. But Adam believed it. And worse, he wanted to believe it. Eve was deceived. Adam was not. We want to believe the lie. We want to believe there will be life found in the graveyard of sin. We go back again and again and again to the same old sins again and again and again. We know they'll leave us miserable. We know they'll leave us empty. But we still go back hoping against hope there'll be life found where there's only death to be had. The madness of sin. We're too easily taken in by the slithery words of the serpent. Going deeper still, though, put away false ways from me. False could be the lie, but it could also be the idol. The word is used to describe not just false ways of living, but false gods we worship. One of the Greek, sorry, one of the Hebrew lexicons says the word ultimately describes that which disappoints in the end and betrays 
on the way. Jeremiah 10, 14 uses the word for an idol. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false. There's the word. His images are false, and there is no breath in them. They look to idols. They have eyes, cannot see, ears, they cannot hear. They have hands, they cannot help, nor can they hurt. And they have lips, but they cannot speak or even make a sound. We worship them. We always live on the cutting edge of faith. Faith in the true God or faith in false gods. Things we look to for life. Things we look to for satisfaction. Things we look to for significance. Things we look to for security. We hold it. We cling to them. But they'll betray us and let us down in. None of us can obey. No man can come. You can't even come to Christ without the help of God. How are you going to obey God without more of the same help? And you get that help by turning to God in prayer. Make me understand. God isn't waiting for you or me to figure it out. Lift up your voice, Lord. Make me understand. Help me understand what it means the Sabbath day, honoring mother and father, not killing my brother or my sister. Help me understand these things. He finds his help looking to God in prayer. He also finds his help thinking about God in his work of providence. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Thinking about God. I've read Philippians 2 a thousand times, maybe not a thousand times, but a lot of times. But I've never seen the things that God showed me this week until I thought about it this week. There's always fresh things to be learned. I was listening to, to Douglas McMillan. He's just a great old, he's dead now in heaven, but he used to be a free church professor of systematic theology. But when he was converted, he was a shepherd in the Highlands of Scotland. And he wrote this wonderful little book, which I gave to Jim this week, called The Lord, My Shepherd. It's a wonderful book, just a tiny book. It's wonderful. But I was listening to him preach on that. You can, listen, you can find them online if you search Douglas McMillan, M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N. It'll come up, particularly this kind of like old free church website. But on that um, website, he has his sermons that he preached, and he's preached several times, as you might imagine, on Psalm 23, and it was just wonderful. And he said, I was thinking about this psalm this week, he said, and the Lord showed me something fresh. How could you see something fresh in Psalm 23? Because there's always something fresh in God's Word. And he said, oh, in this guy said, there are two knots in this psalm, he said, two knots, two wonderful knots that describe the, the experience of one of God's sheep. I shall not want and I shall not fear any evil. 
Never seen that, but just a wonderful little thought. But where do you get insights like that? By chewing the Bible over in your mouth and in your mind and talking about it to yourself in the presence of God, and the Lord will open the treasures of Scriptures to you. And you'll say, well, as I was musing, the fire burned. God doesn't show those things whenever we just carelessly turn to the Bible here or there for a little verse. He wants us to think and deep and study. And then lastly, we've seen the beginning of true repentance coming to the Word, the confession of true repentance. I need help, O God. The teacher of true repentance, Lord, teach me, make me understand. And lastly, the resolve of true repentance. It is God's work in us, but it's also our work as well. As God works in, we work out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. I can never, I can never quote those words without hearing old Eric Alexander saying, we work out because He works in. And it's only because He's at work in us that we can work out. And you see this working out here at the end of the psalm with those three resolves. I have chosen, I will cling, and I will run. I have chosen, verse 30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. Obedience never happens by accident. We must choose it. We must choose to have the law in us, and we must choose to be in the law. I have set your rules before me. The psalmist, notice, is not inactive in the work of sanctification. His confession that he needs God's help to reject the false way, does not absolve him of the responsibility of choosing the right one. Put the false way far from me, he said. That's true. But in the next breath, he says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. And for some of you, you'll never take one step forward in sanctification until you learn that lesson. The two-step, Lord, put away the false way from me, and I have chosen. You've got to choose it. Choose you this day whom you will serve. If pornography is God, choose it. If Christ is God, choose it. If alcohol is God, choose it. If Christ is God, choose Him. If money is God, choose it. If Christ is God, choose Him. Choose. I will choose. I have chosen a settled determination. As the poem says, one ship sails east and another west by the self-same wind that blows. But it's the set of the sails and not the gales which determine which way they go. Which way is your soul set? Have you chosen 
a purpose true to follow Christ. The resolve, verse 31, I have chosen, I, I will cling. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. And there's beautiful balance there. In the first verse, he finds his soul clinging to the dust, clinging, I think, in some measure of deceived devotion to the dusty ways of death. He's clinging to the dust. What's the answer? To cling to the testimonies, to cling to the Bible. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. And then thirdly, I will run. I will run (coughs) in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Remember Eric Little, um, and Eric Little never said this, right? But remember in the movie, Charge of fire, when he says in the rain, where does the power come from? Where does the strength come from to see the race through to the end? You're waiting. And he says, from within, he says, no, 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 no. You've got to be kidding me. <coughs> it doesn't come from within at all. It comes from without. I will run in the way of your commandments. When I dig deep in my heart? No. When you enlarge my heart, when you increase my spiritual VO2 max, if you don't do that, O God, we'll never see the race through to the end. Again, my brothers and sisters, why has God given you prayers like this? Because He knows you need them, and He expects you to use them. And when you do, He intends to answer them. You're not going to God with a tiny wee shrunken, sclerotic heart and say, Oh God, I've got spiritual cardiomyopathy. Enlarge my heart. And the Father won't laugh at you and leave you crying on His doorstep. He will enlarge your heart and you shall run in the way of His commandments. Remember Teddy Roosevelt's father, what his name was? They called him Greatheart. Isn't that a wonderful nickname? He was Greatheart. Well, that's precisely what none of us are by nature, but that's precisely what all of us can be by grace. God is willing to enable to give you a great heart. It doesn't walk. It doesn't limp. It runs in the way of God's commandments. And it's there for asking. If you'll not find a better definition of repentance than the Shorter Catechism, question 87, but you'll not find a better pathway to repentance than Dalit in Psalm 119. It's beginning going to the Word. It's confession. I can't do it, Lord. 
Help me. Put false ways part from me as I tell of my ways. It's, teacher, Lord, make me understand. I'm stupid. I can't get it. And it's, it's strength and it's resolve. I, will cho- I have chosen. I will cling like a desperate man. And I will run, O oh God, when you enlarge my heart at every single point. God is not waiting for you to do something. No, God is waiting simply for you to ask Him for help. Which is where all true repentance and all true spiritual growth begins and ends. Let it not be said of you this evening, or me, that we have not, because we have asked not. Let's pray. O Lord, our God and our Father, I see my brothers and sisters, O God, I see myself tripped up by the same sins each week. Lord, having the same silly arguments with our spouses, the same silly conflict with our brothers and sisters, our parents, our children. And we need Your grace, O God, the same silly addictions to our own favorite waste of time, whatever they might be. And, O God, we need Your help. Put away these false ways from us and enlarge our hearts, O God, that we might run with endurance the race that You've set before us. We don't have the ability, O God. We can't do it by ourselves. We need Your grace. Repent us. Restore us in the pathways of Your righteousness for Your namesake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.